Welcome to the second episode of So We Heard, an informal coffee break chat series. I'm your host Ragini, assistant producer on Can You Hear Us. Monica and Madira started the Can You Hear Us podcast when they were master students at LSE. They wanted to create a safe space for BIWOC to share their experiences. The podcast has grown leaps from this initial idea while the essence remains intact. So We Heard, like our parent series, is a space for BIWOC to share their narratives. We wanted to create a space where we could discuss and understand anything related to international development without the pressure of having to sound intelligent while doing it. As promised, today I'm talking to Sanjana, our social media head. Hi Sanjana. Hello. It's so good to be here. The So We Heard team acknowledges that we do not represent all women or femmes of color and we can only speak from our experiences and perspectives. But we strive to include all women and femmes of color in our conversations. We are always open to feedback from our listeners. A special thanks to the LSE Department of International Development and the LSE Volunteer Center for all their support in not only the production and promotion of this month's episode but also with expanding our team. We would not be able to reach all of you if it wasn't for their platform. Thank you LSE and without further ado Sanjana would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much. Hi everyone, I'm Sanjana. I'm the social media manager at Can You Hear Us and by extension so we heard. And I'm currently pursuing my master's degree in development studies at the LSE. Welcome to So We Heard. And I am so excited for our conversation. So you sent me an article titled, If They Had Left Us Be, We Wouldn't Have Drowned. CNN Investigation Raises Questions About Greek Coast Guard's Account of Shipwreck Tragedy. The story basically goes that there was a ship carrying almost 750 refugees and migrants from Pakistan, Syria, Egypt and Palestine heading towards Italy. On June 14th, the vessel capsized and only 104 people have been rescued alive out of 750. The survivors claim the accident happened because the Greek Coast Guard tried towing their vessel. The Coast Guard claims they sent rescue boats, but the passengers insisted on staying on board and the ruckus caused by them led to a shift in weight, which is why the vessel capsized. The story is obviously tragic, but what caught my eye was the accusatory tone of the Coast Guard, because it almost seemed like they were claiming that those on board the vessel basically asked for this by putting themselves in such a dangerous situation. And um, actually, Sanjana, you had a very interesting takeaway from this article, because you sent me some further reading related to children's rights and I just wanted to read a very interesting quote before you can tell us why you wanted to discuss children's welfare in this context. Mm -hmm. This quote is from an article called Dismantling Children's Rights in the Global North by Kieris Garabagi and Ben Anderson-Nath. It goes, Children and youth are dependent on their families and in particular on the levels of risk their families are willing to take to provide them with opportunities for health, education, safety and opportunity. Overwhelmingly, those migrants characterized as illegal immigrants cannot possibly avail themselves of legal channels to escape conditions that threaten their children's lives and well-being. No country provides open doors for poor, uneducated, disenfranchised and largely disempowered and almost never white people to immigrate legally. This means that the only way to protect the rights of their children to live safely, to be able to play, to get an education and to have the opportunity to shape their own lives is to migrate to countries that offer these things. Not doing so is a violation of children's rights. That just opens up a whole (laughs) different world for me, just a whole different Mm -hmm. different perspective of even looking at this. No, I'm really glad you brought the quote up because it does a really good job in tying and pointing out how 
children's welfare, while it's usually at the bottom, you know, development discourse, mm-hmm. it usually is consistent in a lot of crises, both developmental and humanitarian in nature. Yeah. And it doesn't get the kind of recognition that it deserves. And when you really look at a lot of developmental issues, children's welfare is a big part of all of them. And children's mm-hmm. welfare is both a problem and looking at children's welfare can be can propose lo- multiple solutions along multiple axes of development. Mm-hmm. I think also when we do talk about development, there's such a deep relationship between women's welfare and children's welfare or economic p- growth and children's development, yeah. mm-hmm. health, healthcare and children's welfare. All of like these other spaces of development are so intricately tied in with children's welfare. And when we think about long-term development, the, the the idea that we want development to kind of not just be time-bound or like specific to this era or specific to this right. time, we want more like long-term solutions for development. Looking at children as kind of this, like, the future, yeah, 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 yeah. while it sounds a little cliche, is <laughs> a very important part of how you're targeting your development initiatives. Because oh. especially when it comes to things like health, education, the big, broad things that we do associate with children yeah beyond that also things like employability skill those kind of things that are usually thought about for adulthood if those what is required to bring about that kind of change is understood and then you know brought towards children and targeted towards children it can make big changes yeah what's interesting about children I guess sometimes makes it a difficult category to really analyze understand and support is because while there's this one demographic understanding of children as people below the age of 18 or people who are dependent on quote-unquote adults mm-hmm. for their well-being, mm-hmm. it's such a broad category that can keep changing. So you have yeah. infancy and then adolescence. And then even even within adolescence, there's preteens and then there's teenagers and there's young adults. Yeah. And even sometimes teenagers in different contexts, if they're the head of the household, then sometimes that puts them in a different position where they aren't able to access mechanisms by which they get the kind of childhood experience that they are entitled to by rights, but Mm -hmm. not by circumstance. That makes it a very different, difficult and different category to really target because it keeps changing. What you just (laughs) mentioned about categorization is so interesting as well because post 18 it's almost you've got like an 18 to 25 category you've got a 25 to 30 but for children 0 to 18 is just children yeah sure you've got infants teenagers but in a grand scheme of things the entire category from 0 to 18 is just children which Mm -hmm. I don't know how much sense that makes just from an analytical perspective because anyone who remembers the first 18 years of their life can say that it was not monolithic. (laughs) The the things I was going through at 12 versus 16, my experiences, my emotions, the way I dealt with things. It's in fact, it's one of the most transformative periods of your life, right? Because 0 to 18 is literally going from a newborn who just knows nothing about navigating this world to a full-fledged adult expected to live in it like an adult yeah absolutely I think the category emerged more as like a, it came about legally to kind of protect children and also protect uh industry from exploiting or right. over exploiting the uh community that it was serving so that that's actually a very good point because 18 kind of doesn't seem like a it seems kind of like a random age doesn't it yeah when you yeah. think about it but of course like until you're 18, the amount of changes that you do go through are so significant. Mm-hmm. And after 18, once you're like 19, 20, 21, 
you do still, I mean, obviously life changes and mm-hmm. our capacity to deal with things also changes, but not at the speed at which, which mm-hmm. it does change between zero to 18. Mm-hmm. So I think specifically the fact that so much changes in that time period in our lives, yeah. mentally, physically, that creates a whole other set of experiences for children. Yeah. And when you kind of club that in with, if there's any kind of crises or calamities, like somebody who's 16 and somebody who's 18 are going to experience something very differently, mm-hmm. but still require the same amount of protection, even if it's yes. a different type of protection. Yeah. yeah. I think talking about protection as well, how how do you kind of deal with these years if you're not as protected so let's say if you come from an economically backward background where mm-hmm. you don't have as much protection from your family yeah poverty in adulthood and poverty in childhood are very different yes and in general also I, the discipline of development has begun to kind of recognize the fact that poverty is not only monetary in nature but yeah. also kind of based on you know your health based on your access to legal mechanisms based on your access to other resources quality of life and i think the the idea of multi-dimensional poverty is much more popular now in development and especially when it comes to children's welfare on the one hand there's multi-dimensional poverty on the other hand there's a recognition that children's poverty and adult poverty are independent and very different mm-hmm. but the issue there is that there's very few methods to actually measure children's poverty differently from adult poverty in some cases some scholars used to calculate it as around 0.7 percent of okay. adult poverty or around 70 percent of adult needs were ch- were equated okay. to children's needs okay. but this has kind of like been criticized and discarded because it wasn't rigorous yeah that kind of measure that kind of idea of how do we look at children's poverty as a subset of adult poverty still persists Sure. But it, it it is kind of misleading because it doesn't emphasize the specific criteria that are needed to understand children's de- deprivation compared to adults. It also assumes that children's needs are the same as adults, but just at a smaller scale and kind of implies that children in general need and maybe deserve less than adults who live in poverty. Yeah. And, and then that has, yeah, not so great implications. Yeah, because that just seems like it would go on to kind of reinforce this this cycle of not treating children's needs as actual needs because yeah. they're not somewhere because they're not because their brains aren't fully developed, but yeah. uh, physically they're as much on this planet as any adult. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> kind of circling back to the question that you mainly asked. One solution that I really stand by and support, but obviously it's debated, is the idea of having a child sensitivity lens on policies universally, like Mm -hmm. across the board. So when creating policies, because like we talked about, children being such a diverse demographic, not only in terms of the general things of gender, class, caste, race, all of that also plays a big role among children just as much as it does in adults. But also age. Mm-hmm. Children is an age-based category, but also among that category, age plays a big role. So just taking a child-sensitive lens while developing any policy can make a big difference rather than attempting to create child-specific policies that try to target children in general. Yeah. So an example of that would be in, in cases of pensions. Mm-hmm. So there's like studies that show that families that receive pensions have a greater chance of sending daughters to school than families that don't receive pensions so old age-based policies affect young people similarly conditional cash transfers they're targeted towards while they are those are more specifically targeted towards children's welfare but they also look at 
maternal welfare and the bargaining power of women within mm. the household okay. so kind of like being able to look at children's welfare as kind of a a consistent category in development yeah. and keeping that in the back of our head kind of the same way where we talk about a gender lens mm-hmm. where you can't create women specific policies that's not enough while necessarily not sufficient yeah. it's the same with children's welfare we're keeping that kind of lens as necessary to consistently and continuously create conditions and mechanisms in which children children's welfare kind of exists yeah. is that like one one off policies and targeted measures don't always really yeah. work of course because mm-hmm. i'm also wondering then if if you're using children's welfare as a category would that vary from culture to culture because gender varies from culture to culture i think mm-hmm. how children are treated also varies so in a very typical collectivistic asian culture children are basically seen as an extension of their parents but mm-hmm. in western individualistic cultures i think of it more like a mentor mentee relationship where it's still intimate and very meaningful but there's almost like an understanding of oh i'm providing these resources to you so you can use them for your own and do something for yourself mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a really interesting way of putting it but like the very same thing can be flipped on its head to suit the other context cuz in cases where children are mistreated this is anecdotal but in asian households you see a tendency to say not my place to kind of intervene mm-hmm. but in western cultures like in the us or the uk they have no problem calling calling child protection services on the parents right if they che- see the child being mistreated so i think it's definitely culture specific don't get me wrong i agree with that mm-hmm. but i think it's i i don't know if we can say it's culture specific to the household level right but One thing that is culture specific is going again back to the same point of when you look at development children's welfare is so intricately tied to the general state of development in each place. Yeah. So in places that are conflict ridden or yeah. you know economically stagnant or in places where not, like not great access to schools, legal systems aren't very well set up. Yeah. In those cases children's welfare tends to be first of all it takes a back seat. Right. but in cases where there are attempts at giving children social protection they're very targeted at short term protecting those children from whatever the biggest you know yeah just to i um, guess issue is. get them to survive yeah absolutely and so long term issues aren't the biggest worry of the state or whatever governing body exists at the time yeah. so for example during covid while Mm. so many children were out of school but governments weren't really while it was a concern it wasn't the priority to be like okay get children back to school get children mm. back in classrooms yeah. the priority was to protect the health of those children of course yeah and in many cases again this talks about multidimensional poverty for example in india there's the midday meal scheme to incentivize sure. children to go to school sure so quick explanation the midday meal scheme was started to encourage families to send their children to school by providing meals to children in schools so they wouldn't have to miss school to earn the money because yeah. they would receive food in the school so mm-hmm. that relieves parents of that kind of responsibility yeah. or that worry yeah but during covid and during the pandemic obviously children weren't going to school mm-hmm. and they weren't receiving their midday meal scheme and so a lot of parents were worried because one they were also out of work two children were out of school and three yeah. there was a lack of nutrition and food yeah so that cre- creates another kind of multidimensional poverty where they're not only missing out on education by not going to school 
but they're also missing out on mm-hmm. on their food, nutrition, yeah. caloric intake, which is a huge, which is a much bigger deal when you're a child than it is when you're an, when you're an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, so, I think with COVID, there was a lot of discussion about how it's pushed vulnerable groups further back by so many mm-hmm. years. And I'm just thinking of how when schools shut down, why opening schools wasn't a priority, obviously the health aspect of it, but another mm-hmm. aspect of it was because a lot of urban schools just went online. It was almost like, yes, yes, health is a priority and that's why we're moving school online. Mm-hmm. But so it's almost like you can basically go through the pandemic with with your education being uninterrupted, essentially. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's people who are, who who basically have almost what like a two year gap in their education mm-hmm. yeah and i think in some countries like india now is doing a lot better than it was a while ago but still there's a big problem of academic lag where a lot of kids who are in the 6th or 7th grade are still actually at a 4th yeah. or 5th grade level yeah so while on the one hand it is very commendable that EdTech has brought us to a place where we can just yeah. push schools online if needed. So at yeah. least education is to an extent uninterrupted and undisrupted. Yeah. But yeah, if you're if you're relying on school for things apart from education, which children across the world in many ways are, yeah, it becomes very difficult. Cases of the pandemic, especially, you have one set of children who are exposed to health hazards. You're protecting children who are exposed to health hazards because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Two children who are exposed to the health hazards of the pandemic and who are not receiving the education that mm-hmm. they deserve. Right, and right. three, you have children who are exposed to health hazards, not receiving education, but also not receiving their midday meals and right. in their nutritional intake. Yeah. So all of them are, are facing some form of poverty because of the crisis. But yeah. each each group is facing such a different, a more intense form of poverty, I would say. Yeah. And, then, and there's also no way to be able to tackle all of them with one solution, right? Yeah, exactly. Hello to our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of So We Heard. We ended up recording for way longer than expected, so we have decided to release this episode in two parts. This is the end of part one and I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back with part two in September. So make sure you stay tuned because we have so much from this conversation we cannot wait to share with you. Thank you so much for tuning in to So We Heard. This is your host Ragini signing off and going to overhear some interesting conversation to bring back to you. Bye bye.